Opioid addiction is an immense challenge for the Canadian healthcare system at the moment. We are seeing prescription opioids being diverted from the medical system and an increase in use of highly potent illicit synthetic opioids such as fentanyl and carfentanyl. The result is a marked rise in opioid-related morbidity and death in recent years. Healthcare providers are struggling with how to approach opioid use disorder in an evidence-based and systematic way. I'm Dr. Diane Kelsall, Interim Editor-in-Chief for the Canadian Medical Association Journal, and today's podcast is a bit different from the ones you've heard before. What you're about to hear is a passionate conversation between two experts in the thick of the opioid crisis. Dr. Evan Wood is an addiction medicine specialist and director of the British Columbia Centre on Substance Use. Dr. Keith Ahmed is an addiction medicine physician at St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver and a clinician researcher at the BC Centre on Substance Use. They are two of the authors of a clinical practice guideline published in CMAJ on the management of opioid use disorder. Dr. Ahmed and Dr. Wood discuss the recommendations in the guideline they helped develop. They also share valuable insights into the systemic issues at play and what can possibly be done. I really hope you'll enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Hi, everybody. Uh, My name is Dr. Evan Wood. I'm an addiction medicine physician, and I'm a professor at the University of British Columbia, and I'm the director of the British Columbia Centre on Substance Use. And uh, today we're going to be talking about the new guideline for the treatment of opioid use disorder that um, is being published in the Canadian Medical Association Journal. And my colleague uh, from Vancouver, Dr. Keith Ahmed, has joined us. Keith, can you uh, introduce yourself? As Evan said, my name is Keith Ahmed. I'm also an addiction medicine physician at St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver, originally trained as a family doctor um, and uh, subsequently clinically trained in addiction medicine, also have a a research fellowship in addiction medicine as well and certified in addiction medicine. And I do clinical addiction work at St. Paul's Hospital. And um, I am a researcher at the BC Center on Substance Use and also uh, part of the uh, BC node of uh, CRISM. CRISM. I should have mentioned CRISM. So the Canadian Research Initiative on Substance Misuse has developed this guideline. And uh, that's what we're going to be talking about today. So, Keith, maybe I'll just turn things over to you before we get into the nitty-gritty with the guideline. Can you sort of um, tell tell us a little bit about the current landscape in Canada in terms of addiction care? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think it's an interesting question, you know, or an interesting point. Having um, gone through medical training not, not really that long ago, I guess we can really say that we really don't have a system for addiction care in uh, in in Canada, and I think um, much of the problem stems from the fact that uh, healthcare has sort of traditionally neglected addiction as um, as a, a chronic relapsing disease that it is, and uh, m- much of that stems from the fact that uh, most healthcare professionals haven't been trained to treat addiction in in an evidence based way and. You know, in in my clinical practice, I, some of the some of the problems I see is people bouncing in and out of uh, the healthcare system. For example, in the emergency department, where people present with uh, downstream consequences of addiction, and and really um, nobody addressing the real issue is is their addiction. So it's we we've spent a lot of time uh, treating the downstream consequences, and and it's really uh, not only is it 
unfair to the patients who don't get that upstream care that they need to prevent those downstream consequences, but it's just so expensive on the healthcare system and it's left us in, in total disarray now. And, um, the, the situation I think that we've, we've found ourselves in British Columbia in, in this public health emergency right now with about over 1400 young people dying last year from opioid overdose deaths is, Really, a result of this uh, non-existent system in in, uh, in Canada. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a frustrating area, you know, because um, it's uh, it's an area where we know that the provision of addiction treatment saves uh, lives. We know that it saves healthcare dollars, and it's just been an area that, for various reasons, whether it be stigma towards people who use drugs, it, it doesn't make you know, good political announcements sometimes to be uh, talking about investments in addiction care. And it's just uh, quite remarkable that um, this is a disease. We know it is. We know it results in health consequences, including death. We know how damaging it is to society, and yet the investments haven't been there. So it's um, it's obviously something that uh, that needs to change. Um, why, don't, why don't we get into the guideline? Because I think this is sort of a, a watershed moment for addiction medicine in Canada that can really uh, you know, help set the stage and, and provide a blueprint for what the system needs to do in terms of uh, addressing the, the current circumstances such that they are now. Keith, why don't you why don't you tell us a little bit about the guideline? Yeah, for sure. I think what's what's really unique about this guideline within addiction medicine is that um, it it sort of summarizes all of the evidence um, and helps guide healthcare practitioners and physicians into how to treat addiction um, or to treat opioid addiction in a, in a stepwise manner. And I think what's really unique about this guideline is that, that it, like other, other areas of chronic diseases, for example, COPD or hypertension, there are guidelines that help doctors look at these chronic diseases and, and treat them in a stepwise fashion. And what we've done with this guideline is create a stepwise care model that we can really roll out widely through primary care um, and intensify treatment for people that are not doing well on less intensive treatments. But in addition to that, what's really unique about this guideline is that it also recommends what not to do. For example, withdrawal management only in the, the, the classic model of detoxing people and um, waving goodbye at the door and not tying people into care. Um, so I think another really unique piece of this guideline is that it really highlights the risk and dangers of doing uh, withdrawal management. Yeah, I think so. And, and particularly as, a, as an isolated intervention. I mean, I think most people, you know, you'll hear politicians say, you know, we just need more detox, you know, and, uh, and, and the, the total failure of the Canadian healthcare system to recognize that a real common practice, and that's uh, having people go into detox or a withdrawal management program and, and offering that as an isolated intervention is a real outdated model from, you know, the 1960s and 70s. And when you do that with people who are opioid addicted, essentially what you do is you lower their tolerance to opioids, you know, when the door closes behind them at the detox and uh, they're out on the street again, um, it actually increases fatal overdoses and, and the evidence would suggest, uh, you know, it's better to do nothing 
than to offer people detox if that's all you're going to offer them. So, yeah, I think you're exactly right. The, the guideline talks about first-line and second-line therapies, and we can talk a little bit about those, but also the, the sort of the do-not strategies. And um, I don't think those have been articulated in the same way. Yeah, and I think that, you know, that that outdated model is was sort of built on the model of alcohol addiction where we could tolerate relapse in a way that you don't lose tolerance and have that same risk of overdose and death. And I think with opioids, you lose that tolerance and the risk of death is so high. But now that the drug market also has become so poisonous and toxic that um, it's just really flipped the light switch on to show that what we're doing is extremely dangerous. And, you know, when people come into a system of care, we should be looking after them. And there's no other, there's no other area of medicine where someone has a chronic disease and you bring them into an acute intervention and then push them out and don't look after them long-term, right? Like when people are presenting to the healthcare system with a heart attack, there's this whole pathway that's activated and we we do our acute interventions. And then when they're discharged, they're discharged to wraparound care and primary care and primary care knows what to do. But when people present to the emergency department or detox facilities, we just quickly do that acute intervention. And then, as you said, you know, it's just, it's isolated and we wave goodbye and, uh, and it's just so risky. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So uh, this is a unique guideline. Evan, do you want to talk a little bit about how the guideline was developed? Yeah, that's a, that's a good idea. Cause I think, uh, you know, there should always be a, a healthy dose of skepticism when, uh, when these types of guidelines come out because of some of the shenanigans in the past with, uh, you know, uh, a lot of people at some sunny location having been flown by the pharmaceutical industry to sit around and, uh, sip lattes and, uh, <laughs> and write guidelines in favor of, uh, of, uh, whatever medication industry might be trying to promote. Uh, that's kind of a dark view on things, but, um, sadly, uh, for those that, uh, study evidence-based medicine and some of the controversies of the past, that's actually not, uh, not all that inaccurate. Um, so, so uh, fortunately, in in response, there's actually really nice um, guidelines to how to write guidelines and how to systematically review the literature and how to uh, prepare recommendations in a consensus-based way that could be free from conflict of interest. So, um, we're lucky in this case actually that um, we sort of had a testing ground in British Columbia, and that the BC Centre on Substance Use developed the British. Columbia guideline for the treatment of opioid use disorder and went through that process once. And then with the support of funding from the Canadian federal government and the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, we were able able to then pull together um, a national uh, working group to look at those recommendations, to critically review them, to go through the literature again, see if anything had been missed, see if there was any new literature published since the BC guideline was completed. And we were fortunate to basically replicate the, the findings and recommendations of the British Columbia guideline. And then, of course, the processes to ensure that um, anybody who had uh, had support from the pharmaceutical industry uh, in relation to any of the medications that were described in the guideline would not be able to vote on the recommendations. And in some ways, like we were saying, this is an area that's been largely neglected by the healthcare system and there, there isn't a lot of... Uh, pharmaceutical industry involvement in the same way of uh, other um, 
other areas in, in, in medicine. Uh, the drugs that uh, are used are generic, and, uh, and so there hasn't been a lot of, uh, of that. But the individuals, uh, the very small number of individuals that uh, did have uh, conflicts of interest weren't able to vote on the recommendations, and um, that we arrived at, uh, at the recommendations that we can talk a little bit now uh, about. Keith, do you, do you want to drill down a little bit in terms of what the recommendations are? Yeah, you know, we're, um, I think we're really lucky in this area of medicine that when we were creating this guideline, there is so much of this work has been done in individual areas, but I think for this guideline specifically, no one's ever really synthesized everything collectively together. Um, so there's been so many systematic reviews, meta-analyses looking at uh, methadone and its effectiveness at treating opiate addiction and uh, comparing it to uh, psychosocial interventions without medication. And then there's been, there's a Cochrane review looking at uh, buprenorphine, naloxone, which also with the, under the brand name Suboxone, uh, comparing it to methadone. Um, and then there's emerging evidence for other medications like a sustained release um, oral morphine. And then there's good research also looking at what we were mentioning, talking about um, withdrawal management alone and the, the harms that are done in using that as an isolated intervention. So we're, we're really lucky in that there has been a lot of research in this area, but just no one, no, no one has really taken the time to synthesize it together. So for other diseases, as I mentioned, like, you know, heart failure and asthma and COPD, there's organizing bodies to, that look at guidelines to inform primary care and specialists to say this is the first thing you should do and then this is the second thing you do if people aren't responding well and i think that the big thing with this guideline does is recognizes that buprenorphine naloxone when compared to methadone when the when the medications are prescribed appropriately these medications are essentially equal in treating opioid addiction with outcomes of retention and treatment but also urines that are free of opioids and, and you know, um, reductions in illicit opioid use. So the big thing for this guideline is recognizing that even though these two medications are actually equal in their efficacy in treating opiate addiction, they're actually not the same medication in that buprenorphine naloxone is a medication that was actually designed uh, to um, increase the available, availability of take-home doses because it's really very safe compared to methadone. And I think the nice thing about this guideline is it recognizes that with its safety profile and its equal effectiveness in treating opiate addiction, it is a, it is a medication that should be first line because of its, its safety profile. But in addition to its better safety profile, it actually has a better side effect profile as well where, you know, methadone... I kind of re refer to it as the warfront of the addiction treatment world. It's, it has a lot of drug-drug interactions, and it's a difficult medication to titrate. And, you know, if it is diverted or falls into the hands of people who it's not prescribed for, it actually can, can be very dangerous. So buprenorphine, because of these advantages, it has the ability to be widely available through primary care, like it's used in other places in the world, like the United States and, and France and other, other, uh, other countries where family doctors have been empowered to use this medication, where unfortunately in British Columbia up until a couple of years ago, this medication was kind of hidden behind uh, methadone where you needed a specialty license to prescribe methadone. Then 
you'd have to be able to prescribe buprenorphine or naloxone or suboxone. And now we don't, we no longer in British Columbia and, and most other provinces also uh, don't need that specialty license anymore. So the issue that we have in British Columbia now and across Canada, you know, we, we're seeing uh, very high rates of opioid addiction and untreated opioid addiction that's leading to unintended overdose death uh, in rural communities. And, Buprenorphine naloxone is one of those medications that can be used in remote communities where you don't need to go to the pharmacy every day like you need to with methadone. Um, that's the piece. I'll just say, Keith, that that's the piece that I think of one of two things has been the most controversial part of the British Columbia guideline was the recommendation that buprenorphine naloxone be first line. And British Columbia and I think other jurisdictions in Canada Methadone has been the only kid on the block and it's, you know, this thinking that it's, it's, it's better when, you know, in British Columbia, one in four prescription opioid overdose deaths were attributable to methadone. So not only is it less safe, but as you say, it's, um, it was developed because it's, it's suboxone or buprenorphine naloxone is, is safe for take home dosing. So, so instead of having to, you know, disrupt your life by, lining up at the pharmacy every single day to pick up your medication as has been the standard with methadone because of the risks with diversion because of the public safety issues here's a drug that essentially is a wash in the meta-analyses the 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 Cochrane review showing it's essentially the same as methadone but it's much much safer a better side effect profile better for take-home dosing um, better uh, for for supporting people in their recovery so that was uh, obviously a, a big change for British Columbia, and it will be a big change for Canada. Keith, the other question I wanted to ask you, and, and I think it's relevant to the, the situation with what's happening in the drug supply, but I think the, the second controversial part of the British Columbia guideline, which probably hasn't been as controversial as some of us expected it would be, is the recommendation around um, slow-release oral morphine. Do you, want, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, there, so, you know, working working in... Uh, a detox facility here in Vancouver, sort of seeing people present with opiate addiction over the past five or six years all the time, just, you know, with, as you said, methadone being the, the main kid on the block for so long. Um, and for a lot of people, it doesn't work. Not only does it not work, but the retention rates are around 50 to 60%. For, so for, for a lot of people, this medication doesn't work. And in addition to that, for people that it, it actually does treat their opioid addiction, as I said, the side effect profile of methadone is not really great. A lot of people just can't tolerate the side effects. And and for some people, like buprenorphine naloxone doesn't work as well. And um, we need other options. And an emerging evidence-based uh, option is sustained release oral morphine. There was actually a Cochrane a few years ago um, looking at a, a few trials that were done. And, and, every, and, then, and subsequently, there's been other trials that are done. And Every trial that's been done, it shows that sustained release oral morphine is equal to methadone in treating opioid addiction, but people are happier and uh, there's fewer uh, side effects or the side effects are better tolerated. So it's, it's, you know, an emerging evidence-based option where previously if suboxone or methadone wasn't working, we had no other oral options. And um, this gives us another tool in our toolbox to um, to use for people that are not responding or the medications are not working for them. And I can tell you 
that in our practice here at, at the Rapid Access Clinic at St. Paul's, where we're seeing, we're getting referred a lot of patients who haven't done well on uh, methadone and, and haven't done well on Suboxone. And um, interestingly, people are doing very well on sustained release oral morphine. So it just sort of expands the options, oral options that we have in, in treating opiate addiction. Yeah, I think I think that's been the observation in clinical practice. As you mentioned, there was a, a Cochrane collaboration systematic review looking at slow-release oral morphine versus methadone, which essentially said, you know, they look pretty similar, but hard to say one's better than the other. The, the evidence base is pretty thin. Uh, and then there's been a couple of large uh, trials done, including one international trial across three countries in Europe that, um, as you say, essentially showed if anything, the signal uh, for the treatment of opioid addiction is that it's a wash, but for things like craving, you see less craving uh, for for heroin among people prescribed slow-release oral morphine. And I think what I was alluding to is the fact that um, really it's, uh, it's a bit of a new era now with fentanyl, and we need to be doing everything we can to get people off of toxic street drugs. Um, you and I, Keith, are aware of the, the data from the province-wide um, service that does uh, urine drug analysis for individuals with addiction uh, when physicians order those tests to be done to get a an accurate test. And at uh, a time, I guess earlier in 2017, uh, 20% of the urine drug screens that were testing positive for fentanyl were testing positive for carfentanyl. So these are people that are out there living uh, you know, using drugs and, uh, and, and 20% are, uh, are carfentanyl positive. And that's why, you know, the province has had anywhere from, uh, three to four people per day dying, uh, of, uh, of opioid overdoses just because the drug supply is so toxic. So I think, uh, in that context, um, slow release oral morphine, you know, we know it's as safe as methadone. The literature implies it's, uh, as effective and potentially uh, more effective in terms of some of the, things in terms of ongoing craving. Um, I think it'll be an, an interesting thing when that Cochrane review gets updated, because as you say, there's been a number of uh, studies that have, uh, if anything, shown slow-release oral morphine being, uh, being superior. So it's, uh, it's yeah, pretty uh, exciting. It is exciting. And I, I can tell you that um, in our clinical practice here in, in Vancouver, um, patients are much happier on this medication. And uh, I, do, I do think that maybe 10 or 15 years from now when the evidence base continues to grow, that we'll actually see this medication um, actually become a, a medication that's used bef before methadone uh, because methadone just comes with a lot of complications and side effects and a lot of harm that is unintended, but uh, it, is, it is good at treating opiate addiction. But just not well tolerated by a lot of people. And there's a lot of stigma that goes along with this medication because of the un unfortunate system of care uh, that people have been thrust into that sometimes is not, you know, the treatment burden for methadone is so high. Um, and uh, there's so much stigma here. And I think one thing that this guideline really addresses is like trying to create a system of care that's really embedded within primary care to decrease the treatment burden because you know, a lot of when I'm when when I'm doing a lot of teaching, um, I, I highlight how high the treatment burden is and how hard it is to get people to engage in uh, treatment with methadone. It's sort of like comparing oral contraception for teenagers. And if teenagers had to go to the pharmacy every single day to pick up their medication, 
there's no way that they would take this medication, right? So I think that something unique about this guideline is that patients can continue to go to their family doctor where we know we have uh, better outcomes longitudinally for every area of care. And, um, and, uh, I think family doctors, when they're, when they're listening to this podcast, a really important point is you can treat opioid addiction in primary care and then step up to more intensive care like other areas of, of, of medicine. And, um, I guess it's important to highlight too that there are, there will be people who won't be on medication and that we know that these medications have a huge proven mortality benefit and that in this guideline we're really highlighting that doing detox alone is really risky but there will be some people that won't want to be on medications and will be discharged but they will hopefully be engaged in primary care so family doctors have to recognize that these patients are at risk of relapse because the, the majority of people do relapse um, and that they need to continue to engage with if they start craving, just start Suboxone or start buprenorphine uh, in their clinic on that day. And if they're not on medications that they really need to be engaged with harm reduction and take home naloxone kits for everybody um, and hopefully uh, more widely available overdose and prevention sites and supervised consumption sites because, you know, the risk of overdose and death is so high. But if people do start craving and they're not on medications, you can start this medication instantly and and, and the, the mortality risk plummets. Well, that's, that's an important point to make too, because historically and still in some jurisdictions in Canada, but historically in British Columbia, you had to have a federal uh, exemption to prescribe methadone so as to be able to prescribe buprenorphine naloxone. And generally the, the system was set up such that people had to fail methadone first, which, you know, makes, uh, makes no sense. That's like having a, you know, instead of having a mole removed, uh, you know, you got to get chemotherapy before you get surgery to have the, the mole removed. It just doesn't make sense. I think, I think your point to, um, to, to kind of, uh, at least elaborate a little bit. And then I, and then I have a question for you about sort of the number one intervention that needs to be rolled out. Cause we've talked a lot about methadone. We've talked a lot about slow release or morphine. You know, I, I think the, the, the takeaway points before we move on from those are, you know, methadone has been the traditional standard of care. It's on the World Health Organization's list of essential me- uh, uh, medicines. We know it's a life-saving medication. We've kind of bashed it a little bit, I think, because we want to see the, <laughs> the standard of care evolve to give people more choice and to be more evidence-based. But certainly, methadone is an excellent medication that saved the lives of many people. Um, but yeah, hopefully, people are hearing it's not for... Uh, for everyone, slow-release oral morphine is a new kid on the block. But like methadone, um, if it gets in the wrong hands, very risky for fatal overdose. Uh, could certainly cause iatrogenic addiction. So just like methadone, you have to go to the pharmacy every day to get your slow-release oral morphine under witness ingestion to ensure that those pe- uh, public safety risks are addressed and, and that uh, the, me- the medication is used responsibly, at least until um, an individual stable. Um, but having having talked a lot about those, Keith, what would you say is the sort of the number one intervention that needs to be rolled out more aggressively that that this guideline recommends? You know, I think what I've sort of been alluding to um, with this guideline is really the empowerment of primary care to treat opioid addiction, and and like we can do in in primary care, if we we what we really have, need to do is not only create a system of care uh, with really rooted and with a backbone in primary care. Um, but uh, we need to prevent addiction and treat addiction in, in primary care. And I think that 
the thing, the number one intervention here is, is uh, using buprenorphine naloxone as, as first line. And, and the reason why it's so important is it really does give us the opportunity to, to modernize this system of care and create a, a system of care that's really rooted in, in primary care. Um, the, the thing about buprenorphine naloxone or the, uh, the trade name Suboxone is it's really very safe and very, very easy to prescribe. And so, unfortunately, in Canada, as, as you've mentioned, methadone for so long has been the, the, the standard of care. But buprenorphine naloxone or Suboxone is actually a generic medication. It's been around for a very long time. The evidence is very clear. It's, it's very good at treating opiate addiction. And because it's so safe, we can we can use this medication widely in primary care in rural areas. Um, in Massachusetts, they have a really interesting model where they have uh, nurse-led uh, care around uh, buprenorphine naloxone. And in in rural communities, for example, in in Saskatchewan in Canada, there's uh, skyrocketing HIV rates that are directly related to injecting opioids and untreated opioid addiction in these rural First Nations communities is a huge problem. So I think that the we have the opportunity here um, with this guideline in making Suboxone and buprenorphine naloxone widely available throughout primary care. Um, and the current state is that it's vastly underutilized. So the opportunity we have here now with this guideline is to really push education uh, and engagement with primary care so that they know the advantages of this medication and how to prescribe this uh, medication and how to communicate with with patients and recognize opioid addiction and use this medication uh, to, to its full advantage. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I, I think the number one takeaway from this guideline is, um, you know, besides the challenges around the induction of, uh, of buprenorphine naloxone, it's just so safe. You know, the irony that, um, that primary care physicians have been very comfortable prescribing, you know, Oxycontin and other full opioid agonists. And here's something that, uh, the literature just shows people generally, you know, so rare instances of fatal overdose of suboxone it's almost like you almost never ever see it uh, and so those instances are obviously you know suicide attempts and other things where people have taken just a huge amount of suboxone with a bunch of other medications so something that's so effective and so safe it really needs to be uh aggressively rolled out what, what would you say in terms of kind of um let's go back up to thirty thousand feet and and sort of you know what would be the next steps let's uh Let's hope that uh, there's lots of primary care physicians listening to this. Let's hope also that there's some health policymakers that uh, are in sort of a decision-making capacity and sort of, you mentioned rural areas, but um, other other areas, you know, what what kind of are the, the, the next steps as you see them for addiction care in Canada? Well, I think the most important piece of the puzzle here is increasing funding specifically for addiction care. You know, addiction science, is so far ahead of addiction care and we need to take that science and bring it to the bedside so to speak we need to treat drug use as a public health issue and a uh, rather than a criminal justice issue where you know i i work at vancouver city jail here in vancouver and i see people that are being uh they're they're entering a supposed supposed system of care uh, so frequently, but they're being arrested for petty crime and and stuff that's really related specifically to untreated addiction. And um, it's so costly to the healthcare system. But 
also this just unnecessary human suffering because there's no system of care. And I frequently see people that are, uh, you know, part of their parole and probation is that they they uh, go they have to do certain uh, and I put in air quotes, you know, treatment that is not evidence based and absolutely will lead to certain relapse. And there's just a major, major gap in care. And we have to, you know, um, we do have major mental health issues and crises in, in Canada. But unfortunately, addiction is the little stepbrother is been paired with mental health for so long and as the funding comes down to treat that big monster it never the money never funnels down to addiction care and i think so we got to be very careful to earmark money specifically uh to create that system of care through uh education and the creation of other guidelines and that we look to integrating that whole system of care from harm reduction through treatment through to the recovery system right so um as we've always said you know, tilt that system from harm reduction. When we've got people in the harm reduction system, make sure that we keep them engaged in this system of care as we create it, and then tilt it down towards uh, recovery and engaging with the recovery system. I think that's a piece that's been really missing, and we haven't mentioned recovery. I mean, mental health has been an area that's attracted a lot of attention, well-meaning, but when it comes to the substance use side of the equation, it's just been so neglected and, uh, and those dollars haven't trickled down, as you say. And I think a, a dedicated, focused strategy looking at, um, all the issues from alcohol addiction, tobacco, stimulants and opioids. It's a very sort of unique area in medicine. It's not just, uh, mental health comorbidities that occur, but, um, there's HIV and hepatitis and all the medical consequences of addiction. And, uh, it really does need focused, uh, resources and energy and, um, on the other end of the, the spectrum is something that's a lot in the news that we haven't talked about, and that's um, heroin prescription. And when we're getting uh, injectable opioid agonist therapy via diacetylmorphine, do you want to comment about that? Because that's not in the guideline, and that'll be a question mark for people. Yeah, and I, I think an important point here is that um, these oral medications, like other medications that we have in, in, in medicine, sometimes they don't work for people, actually, not infrequently. And the potential harms of uh, untreated opiate addiction, I mean, I see it at St. Paul's all the time. And we try our very best uh, with these oral medications to engage with people, but <laughs> sometimes they, they don't work. And um, sometimes we need to, to step up care and really catch people uh, moving from an oral treatment model to uh, one where we use prescribed medications that are used uh, through injection. And that's where prescription heroin comes in. And the evidence internationally is actually very clear that when we randomize people to methadone versus prescription heroin, people do better in prescription heroin when they haven't done well in oral medications. And we really need to create a system of care where when we see people not doing well on oral medications, we step them up to uh, prescribe heroin. Um, and then when we have them stabilized and brought into a system of care, looking towards moving them down towards that, uh, down that less intensive treatment spectrum, right? So there, it's, I've had patients that have been in the prescribed uh, heroin or inject in, injection hydromorphone program here. And um, I've seen them in, and we've started them on Samoxone and it, really can be life-changing for people but for for some people where these oral medications don't work uh, we need to step up their care to an injection uh, program and um, it it can be very effective and certainly life life-saving 
and then just engage with them long term to you don't want to park people. I think that what something that is misunderstood is that some, you know, the general public think that what you do is you get them into a prescribed heroin program and then they just stay there. And I think that 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 is not true. And looking in Switzerland, the average length of time where people stay in this program is about three years. And what you want to do is see these people frequently and always have that conversation of moving them down towards a less intensive treatment model. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, and, and I think there's ways of probably engaging people that are really intense in their addiction or may have, you know, severe comorbidities, uh, hypoxic brain injured individuals, uh, you know, very traumatized street entrenched people where an injectable opioid agonist therapy may be a way to engage them in care. And as you know, Keith, in the, in the clinics in, in Vancouver, um, people talk about the stir effect where quite quickly it becomes difficult to distinguish a staff person that works at uh, a heroin prescription clinic like the Crosstown Clinic or um, or whether they're a patient there because uh, suddenly that, you know, hustling to be able to get drugs and all the all the problems that go along with untreated opioid addiction wash away because people are getting treatment. And, uh, and, and I think, as you say, offering things like slow release or morphine uh, or other things that don't have uh, the requirement that people come to the clinic two or three times a day offer the opportunity, and, and, and that's a system that really needs to be built. Yeah, and I think, it, it you know, addiction in itself is really a young person's disease, and um, we need to catch people and bring them into a system of care and um, prescription heroin and injectable programs give the opportunity to stabilize that, as you say, all that uh, chaotic behavior that goes on with uh, looking for illicit drugs and obtaining illicit drugs, whether it's uh, sex work or criminal behavior and homelessness and bringing people into a system of care, stabilizing them and looking after their comorbidities. You know, I've seen patients who, because of their, they're so entrenched in their addiction, they're not able to look after their type 1 diabetes and they're repeatedly admitted to the hospital with uh, diabetic ketoacidosis and and uh, leaving the hospital against medical advice because their their addiction is not treated. And we've actually started patients on injectable therapy in the hospital, stabilized them, treated their diabetes, and then discharged them to a system of care where they've been completely stabilized and, and looked after in primary care. So it's pretty amazing. And as you say, that, that hipster effect and we have a, a colleague, Dr. Christy Sutherland, who was telling me just the other day that it's it's amazing to see these patients stabilize and she has, you know, she sees patients that are like engaging with their family again and, and reading books and they're unbelievably happy and they're stable in their housing and you're able to catch them at that system of care and, and really look after them. And I think there's just a lot of, a lot of people, it's a misunderstood treatment and it's, uh, this is a medical treatment, right? Where people are coming into the, the healthcare system and we're using a medication, a prescribed medication um, to, to treat their addiction. And that when their addiction is treated, all those consequences and harms that go along with untreated addiction fade away. And the improvement in people's lives is really very amazing. Um, so, Evan, if I were to ask you one question, I think I would say that if you were the prime minister, what would you recommend we do today for not only treating opiate addiction, but addiction as a whole? <laughs> you know, I, I think anyone listening to this and anyone who's ever 
had a loved one that suffered from addiction. It's been a bit of a mystery that you can um, take somebody to the emergency room and the emergency doctors, you know, have nothing to offer or go to your primary care physician and they kind of, you know, look at you white faced, you know, kind of all too often just, uh, you know, not, not knowing what to do, not being aware of the needed resources. Um, it's a lack of funding. So health authorities, you know, just neglecting this issue. You know, we mentioned Vancouver detox and you and I both work in, in Vancouver coastal health. And we're aware that the, you know, withdrawal management program for Vancouver, uh, even in the context of the fentanyl epidemic is the city's old, uh, dog pound. It's, <laughs> it's the animal shelter where, where um, individuals now go to to get uh, withdrawal management. So it's just a lack of funding is the biggest issue. But beyond that, it's it's the structural issue that stems from the lack of training of healthcare providers in addiction medicine. So there's no no education for medical students in medical school. Residents don't get any education. And then there aren't specialty training programs in most jurisdictions in Canada. So, you know, unlike the situation which you alluded to, like a heart attack, where if you go to a teaching hospital anywhere in Canada, not only would you get put on the chest pain pathway, but there'd be medical students and residents and they'd all be getting taught by a cardiology fellow and then there'd be the cardiology staff. And every year, you know, the healthcare practitioners, including nurses graduating with expertise in this area and knowing about the guidelines. And there just hasn't been training for healthcare providers in addiction medicine. So it, it literally is the biggest issue that um, is contributing to uh, the reason that we don't have a system funding and training for healthcare practitioners. So obviously in British Columbia, we've been able to cobble together an addiction medicine training program that's been very successful. And so you see now different clinics opening up with graduates from the fellowship leading them and having medical students and nurse trainees and others there who have a nursing fellowship as well. Um, beyond the sort of the acute medical needs for these patients, uh, something that's really the elephant in the room that we haven't talked about, of course, is um, the criminalization of people who use drugs and the fact that uh, we're treating this as a criminal justice issue. And you know, that just serves no benefit to society. You know, the cat and dog kind of situation uh, or cat and mouse is maybe a better example. Um, you know, Canadians being chased around by law enforcement because they have the health condition, it drives people into hidden environments where they use alone, and that's the biggest issue uh, in British Columbia for people going and using by themselves. No one's there when they have an overdose, and you know they're discovered sometime later having had a fatal overdose. So the the criminalization uh, of people who use drugs, you know, there's there's the, the scientific literature in this area, you know, going back to the era of showing why people share needles and how HIV is transmitted, uh, just treating this as a criminal justice issue, you know, everybody loses. It's the, you know, maybe not uh, budgets for uh, drug law enforcement, but um, certainly, you know, the criminalization of people who use drugs is, uh, is just, a, a, you know, probably the biggest social justice issue uh, facing our country, and it's just been an absolute catastrophe. And uh, certainly, you know, our federal leadership needs to understand that, uh it just it just does not work, and it's making things uh, worse for everyone. And I would go so far as to say, and this is this is actually a no brainer, um, that that really looking at the problem of fentanyl, which is why uh, addiction has suddenly become top of mind, that fentanyl is really a consequence of prohibition. 
you know, first there was opium and that was bulky and hard to import and, you know, clandestine efforts to bring it into the country were really dangerous. So, okay, how do we distill this down into something really, really pure and less bulky and along comes heroin and then, you know, uh, as, as technical advances are made, hey, we don't even need to grow a poppy anymore. We can, we can have fentanyl that's illicitly manufactured and you can order it over the mail. And, um, this is all, you know, because of prohibition. And I'm not sure if you saw the Globe and Mail, uh, editorial from, I guess, about a week ago, you know, saying, oh, we need to wage an all out war and start increasing, you know, criminal penalties. Uh, you know, you, you can't get out of a, a problem with the same thinking that got you into the problem in the first place. And uh, unfortunately, you know, if you if you ask me, you know, what should we do uh, at the level of the highest level thinking in, in Canada and technically internationally is really uh, we need to create a health system for people who are addicted. And we need to look at uh, sort of this war on drugs approach and you know, the trillion dollars that's been spent right now and where it's gotten us and it's it's gotten us to where we are today in the midst of the fentanyl epidemic and we really need to uh start looking at alternative public health models and, and, and regulatory models for how we treat the problem of drugs in a way to, you know, better protect our uh society not only from the public health outcomes like overdose, but of course the uh the gangsterism and organized crime that is a, just a natural consequence of prohibition. This is just the, the biggest boon for, for organized crime in Canada that we, uh, that we make these things illegal. So that's what I would say to answer that question, Keith. Yeah, the decriminalization piece is really, it's, it's unbelievable that, um, in 2018, what we know now about what we've done to people who use drugs through decriminalization and creating that stigma, it's unbelievable. You know, this, the issue right now is like, having diabetes and essentially insulins being controlled by by the hell's angels and um i think something that this guideline does around uh hopefully long-term changing stigma and, and maybe one day leading to decriminalization is that it, it does empower the healthcare system through primary care to take this on and treat it as a health issue because i think that doctors have felt like oh addiction is something that we can't treat and we can't it's not our issue it's uh, these people are doing behavior that's wrong, and I think that this guideline actually um, powers the healthcare system to start screening for addiction, preventing addiction, and then treating addiction the same way that we treat other chronic diseases. And um, and I hope that uh, through the creation of guidelines here, that uh, we'll we'll lose some of that stigma through the healthcare system, which I think is a, a real problem. But um, the decriminalization pieces, it's unbelievable, you know that. So many people in Canada are consuming alcohol in their homes and going to specialty stores and 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 specialty bars to consume alcohol, and uh, people that choose to use other drugs are uh, treated as as criminals. And it's um yeah, it really it absolutely certainly has to change. Yeah, no, I really agree, and I I hope with this guideline that um as we said at the beginning of the podcast, this is a blueprint that um sets the stage and 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 provides kind of an architectural framework for health systems, you know, to drill down on these recommendations and then start looking at, okay, how do we change what we do in detox? How do we change what we do in primary care? How do we change some of the regulations around these medications? How do we make them uh, accessible when people are brought to emergency rooms or 
other places, you know, there, there needs to be, you know, blinking neon signs that say help here if you've got addiction and, and yeah. families can bring a loved one and people can go and these evidence-based tools are available. So I think that's what we're all hoping for will we'll come out of this guideline. And obviously uh, some work will be required as there is with any guideline to, to move on to the implementation phase. So again, an interesting, uh, an interesting conversation, Keith. Uh, it's been fun to to take the time and talk this through after uh, you know you know how many hours went into developing a guideline like this. So it's fun to now be able to start talking about it and, and sharing that information and uh, looking forward to seeing uh, good things roll out as a result of it. Yeah, it has. It really has been amazing over the past few years. You know, working in this area of medicine, being paralyzed with um, the inability, feeling like can't really do anything, and uh, it it feels great now to have been involved in this. I would say exceptionally collaborative process across Canada that this guideline really um, does offer an opportunity to start moving forward. Um, you know, when I went to med school, I never would have thought that I would have been involved in a public health emergency in British Columbia and uh, involved in writing and producing a guideline with my colleagues across the country. So what an honor this process has been and the opportunity to work with CRISM and people like you, Evan. So um, thank you and the Canadian Medical Association Journal for, for working with us here. That was a conversation between Dr. Evan Wood, addiction medicine specialist and director of the British Columbia Centre on Substance Use in Vancouver, and Dr. Keith Ahmed, an addiction medicine physician at St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver and clinician researcher at the BC Centre on Substance Use. They were two of the authors of a national clinic practice guideline on management of opioid use disorder published in CMAJ. To read the full guideline, visit cmaj.ca. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. While you're there, you can browse and listen to our many past episodes. I'm Dr. Diane Kelsall, Interim Editor-in-Chief for CMAJ. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.